asifile. That is Swahili. That means praise the Lord. And if you come to Africa with us on a short-term team and you can't remember that, you can actually say bunnies on the freeway. Bunnies on the freeway. And, and that's close enough. So, bunnies on the freeway. Let's try it, but you have to shout back amen. Ready? Bunnies on the freeway. Amen. Okay. But truly, we do praise God. God has done amazing things, and we are so excited to be with you. We do not have time to, to share everything with, with everybody, but um, we're looking forward. Also, I think after church, there might be uh, something happening in the fellowship hall. So we'll be hanging out and love to talk more and uh, deeply with so many of you who are, who are ready. Because so much progress has happened, and maybe some of you are saying... Who are these people? Well, at one point, uh, I was on staff here uh, in the church, probably 10 years or, or more. And uh, as Amy said, I came back from Africa, one of the trips, and they were I- installing a new associate pastor, Amy Bossard. And so we grew into love, and we were able to be married right here in Garden Grove. And now it's the engagement here, and then our, our, our children. But uh, God has led us to establish a ministry. So we've been serving in East Africa. We've been back for just a couple weeks, and now we leave again in a couple weeks. And so I'm very excited to have this short window of opportunity to share with you this morning, because there's progress. Nathaniel, who turned nine yesterday, so he's in Sunday school right now, but when you see him uh, with us, you can say, oh my, you look older for some reason. He'll be, he'll be very excited to know that you know. Uh, but last year, when he was losing yet another tooth, I, he told me, he said, Dad, now I know how you become a man. I said, really? How is that? He said, it's when you lose all of your baby teeth. I'm not sure what you were thinking. We're growing older. There's progress happening. I remember when Joshua was half of his age, we were wrestling there, there at our house, and he was winning some kind of pile driver move as he was sitting on my chest, looking down in my eyes, and uh, Amy saw the moment, tender moment, uh, father and son, and she said, oh, Joshua, when you grow up, do you want to be like your daddy? And I thought, oh, don't ask him that question. He might just say no, and I'll have to go through some therapy and other things to recover. But good enough, he looked at me and he said, yes, Daddy, when I grow up, I'm going to be like you. And when you grow up, you're going to be like me. (laughs) I thought, there it is. That's true. That's it. my, My young theologian Doesn't Jesus say when we finally grow up, we will have the heart of a? In fact, he tells us, he challenges us to be like children. And I I think and I reflect on that, that there's a part of a child that loves to to risk and to trust their dad. I remember a church that we were attending uh, for for a while. They had this curb outside, um, and Joshua used to run out and get on that curb And every Sunday, Amy and I would walk by there, and he would call to me, Dad, catch me. Well, the first time, I I stood so close that I was almost touching him. And he looked at me like, no, back up. 
So I took a couple inch back, you know, and he said, no, back up. So I slowly backed up until he said, okay, there. But, you know, there was a, there was a risk involved. There was a space between us that for sure he had to leap with a lot of strength, and I had to catch him. And he jumped. And I think we were at the hospital, was it two hours or so? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I caught him. I did. I caught him, and, uh, you know, he, he, we hugged and embraced each other, and there was something about that. In fact, that became a ritual almost every Sunday. Catch me, Daddy. And I can't help but reflect on our Father's heart. Don't you? So much of our culture says that what life is about is leisure and security and safety. And yet the kingdom of God calls us to a life where we are his disciples, where he says, if you want to be my disciple, take up your remote. <laughs> no. And a cross, an instrument of death, something where you're willing to say, God, everything I am, everything I have, it all belongs to you. Catch me, Dad. And I'm not sure what it is for you this morning. It might be where God would whisper to you and your heart would say, God, I want to be obedient at work to speak or to move or maybe in the church here to give in some way that doesn't make sense according to your financial advisor, but God says, do this, do that, move, speak, go. And as John has done a great job instructing as a body in terms of the one another's, where it says in Galatians chapter 5, it says, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. There's a freedom even in that risking. There's a freedom even in the giving. In fact, that's where we gain the real freedom is when we step out and move out beyond our comfort zone. When we're giving beyond the measure for the sake of the kingdom and for Christ, we begin to experience greater freedom than we otherwise would. And I thank God for the way that this church has been a part of my life, about Amy, there's no way we could serve as empowering lives for me personally without this amazing lady. She has such insight. She is connected with the Holy Spirit. There are times when we are facing a real challenge as our ministry has grown. And she begins speaking. And she knows on my phone I have this tape recorder. And she sees when I'm reaching for it to hit the button because I know... I can't remember it all, and it's all exactly right. And so she sometimes says, are you recording me again? I say, honey, I can't remember it all. I have to. God is using her in our ministry in guiding. So thank God that he has blessed me. In fact, um, when I came back from Africa on one of these trips, we had you, you had installed a new associate pastor, and that was Amy Bossert. So thank you for hiring such quality. <laughs> and I got the privilege of having her for the rest of my life. And uh, so this church has been an amazing part of this journey. And back in, what, 89, 88, this church was on a mission to send a team to Africa. But just before that trip was to take place, the one leading that trip left the church. And, and uh, so... The letter was written from Africa because the trip was canceled, but the guy in Africa wrote back. He said, well, who else would come? And I was at that meeting. <clears throat> I was at that meeting where they were discussing who from our church would go to Africa. 
And I felt God's whisper, and maybe you felt it too, maybe not for Africa, but for other things, and I can't encourage you enough. Be obedient. For me in that moment, my head said, don't you dare raise your hand. Africa? They probably have spears. (laughs) And my heart was beating, just saying, Don, go. You don't know what it's about. You you don't know what's ahead, but that's not the issue. The issue is me and you and your obedience and my kingdom cause. And I found my hand trembling, and it went up in the air. And I remember Dave Henry saw it. He was chairing the meeting, and he said, Don, do you have a question? (laughs) I said, no, I'll go. And he said, oh, okay, yeah, you go. And everybody else said, yeah, you. (laughs) And if you survive, I mean, when you come back, then tell us what it's like. Tell us what opportunities there are there in Africa, and that began a journey that I went back every summer. This church prayed for me for that very first time. Right here at this altar, and you came, and you, you blessed, and you prayed, and my knees shaking, and when I, I remember leaving that sanctuary and, and um, wondering, God, what's going to happen? But that was the first of several trips. Thank you so much. Bud? <laughs> All right, get ready. Just kidding, just kidding. Oh, don't leave, don't leave. No, I'm kidding. That was the first of many trips um, coming back and forth to Africa until five years into this journey of, of doing what we could to try and create small businesses for suffering people and to provide leadership training that the pastor at this church, Jim McGee, and a couple businessmen from, from this church said, Don, what God's doing here, it's bigger than our church. You should step out in faith and start a ministry. And so... This church gave me the office behind the baptistry. There's a little room back there. That was Empowering Lives International headquarters. And um, then I remember sorting brochures among these uh, seats and so forth. So I want to thank God for you, for this church body that has stood with us over these 15, 16 years. We may not be able to change the whole world, but we can change the whole world for one person. And I imagine many of you, like me, when I came back and I talked about the poverty and the extents of that poverty, and I remember the um, learning certain facts that I hadn't really paid much attention to before about 1.2 billion people on our planet today live on less than a dollar a day, and they don't have discounts. There isn't blue light specials. These are people who are struggling for their daily food and certainly can't even afford to put their kids into school or to buy more than one shirt a year. But those statistics were that until I began to see it and get involved and realize that, in fact, we can make a difference. Love one another. We may not be able to love everyone, but there's one that we can love. And even Jesus, when he said in Matthew 25, whatever you've done to one of the least of these, isn't it? you've done to me. He says the word one. Mother Teresa, she wrote, I never look at the masses as my responsibility. I look at the individual. I can only love one person at a time. Just one, one, one. So you begin. I began, she said. I picked up one person. Maybe if I didn't pick up that one person, I wouldn't have picked up 42,000. And the same thing goes for you. The same thing in your family, in your church, your community. Just begin, she challenges us. 
one, one, one. And as Amy and I have served in Africa, we have seen lives change one at a time. But where it began as one, then dozens, then a few hundred, it's now reached thousands of people. And I am excited to share that with you today. I have some images that I want them to share. And as Pastor John said, please take one of these prayer cards. It has all of our communication, even Facebook. (laughs) And then a friend who came to Africa He's a graphic artist. His world got turned upside down until he quit his job, and he's doing freelance, but he said, Don, one of the things I want to do is I want to make these magazines to help communicate what God's doing. And so, please, if you could take that with you home today, that would really, really mean a lot to us. This is one of the night scenes. It's, oh, there it is. The next one is uh, my family. This picture was just taken just before we came. We wanted to get some, have some family pictures done. And where Amy and I live, we we have the training center where we empower people with ideas of breaking the cycle of poverty and leadership and and evangelism there. It's about five acres. Then we have a six-acre orphanage. It's all part of one compound, though they're separate entities. And so as we were sitting there outside of the children's home, we were taking this picture and these two kids from the children's home just scooted right up and sat right there. And the guy, a friend of ours with a camera, he he put it down and then I I whispered to the kids, I said, hey, you guys, this is a family picture. And they said, we know. (laughs) I couldn't ask them to leave. Could you? No way. We have 200 orphans that we're raising. We have two orphanages, 100 in each one. Uh, no mom, no dad, desperate situations. And there are millions of orphans, and we can't help all of them. But we're raising up an army of 200. And these kids don't know memory verses. They know memory chapters. On Sundays, they, they have these little choirs that they've formed in the children's home. They come up and sing for the church and worship. But before they sing, they usually start with a memory verse. And sometimes I check my watch, you see, because they're still going. Amazing amazing as they hide God's word in their heart to see what God is doing in them and through them. As we serve now, the ministry has expanded. Where I, When I first went, it was just Tanzania. We started with just a couple small projects, but it's now expanded. We're in four countries, Tanzania, Kenya, Eastern Congo, in the city of Bukavu, Congo, a war-torn area. We were able to move in and buy a small piece of land in the middle of a slum. And we started a school there. So many of the people in the community, they say, how did you even think to do this here? The government doesn't help us. There's no organizations here. But you have put this school, it's like a gym that fell out of heaven and just landed in our midst. We have 600 kids that are learning about the Lord. They get a daily little porridge that we, we special recipe for nutrition, and they're, and they're learning an education that they otherwise wouldn't have the chance to live. Uh, to, to, to gain. So we have a school in Kenya that caters to our orphans in our orphanages, but also 150 kids in the, in the community. Our school of 600 in Bukavu that I just mentioned. And then a school I'm just really proud of is in southern Sudan. And those of you who follow the news, you might be aware that for 40 years, southern Sudan has been at war. Um, 
the North has been trying to predominantly, the predominantly Muslim North has been trying to annihilate the South, which is mostly Christian and animists. They have a special plane, in fact, that was designed to specifically eliminate human life. And my friends in southern Sudan would tell me, they'd say, Don, we, knew, we know what that plane sounds like. And we could hear it coming at a distance. And it's specially designed to drop firebombs, to burn villages, and then the machine guns are specifically uh, positioned to, to riddle the ground. Uh, so they would say that we would know when we would hear that plane and we could hear the sound getting closer, we knew people were going to die. And you never knew if it would be you or not. Millions were killed. It's very sad. But six years ago, a peace agreement was signed. And now, last January, January of this year, was their Independence Day. Southern Sudan is now its own nation, creating its own government. And six years ago, when that first peace agreement was signed, we were able to start a school, the first school in over 30 years in that area. And when we opened it, there was 200 kids, ages 5 to 15, all of them in the first grade. First chance to be in a classroom. We now have, it's grown 400 children, and what a thrill it is to be a part of what God's doing. In fact, this is some of the boys before we started the school when I was visiting there to see them malnourished, struggling, and now this little boy, he was among them without much clothing and malnourished and so forth, but anyway, he's been in our school now for these years. He is so healthy and he speaks English along with all the other kids in our school because Southern Sudan chose English to be the curriculum language. And so he was showing me, he says, this is my report card. I said, wow, Peter, good job. And he's showing me, he's very proud. And I said, where did you learn to speak English so well? And he said, looked at me like, uh, in our school? <laughs> I said, wow, you're doing great. I said, Peter, what do you want to be when you grow up? He said, hmm, I want to drive one of those machines that flies really? I go, wow, that's, I said, that's an airplane. He says, yes, airplane. I said, the guy that drives it is called a pilot. He said, yes, pilot. <laughs> I don't know if he's going to reach that dream, but I do know he has dreams now, and he didn't before. And you might say, you know, you want to be a part of, of helping some of the, those kids. You can help sponsor a class. We don't have individual child sponsorship in Sudan or the, or the Congo. We do in Kenya for our orphans, but in this case, we kept finding that because of poverty and unrest, that so many of the families would move. They migrate trying to look for food or look for safety. And so when people were sponsoring a child, after some time, we'd have to go back to the sponsor and say, sorry, your child, they, we're not sure where they moved to. So now you can sponsor a class. So even if three or five have left, you still have the rest. You can write the class, they'll write you. So it's a different concept, but it makes all the difference for these kids. Here's our school there in southern Sudan. Jacob, I met him in Tanzania. He was one of the first brothers I got to really bond with on those first trips. Um, in fact, this next shot is Jacob about 15 years ago, together with another guy with dark hair. Somebody, after the first service, came up and they said, who was that guy at the dark hair? So it's somebody that I know very well. 
but this was the first, one of the first projects. You can move to the next one here. Um, because Jacob, who learned to make those cement water storage jars, and last time I was here, I told you the miraculous providential story of how he and I tried to make these jars, but we ended up making these large dinosaur eggs that were ugly and didn't work. But then I met a, 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 I saw a white guy in Mwanza, a major city, and I never saw white people. And how I, I, my curiosity just drove me to, it, to meet him. And I, I just said, excuse me, sir, but I couldn't help but notice that you're not from around here. <laughs> and uh, he said, no, you're right. And uh, in the course of the conversation, he said, yeah, I'm teaching people how to make these water storage jars. And J Jacob started making them. Well, let me just share with you that Jacob is now the director of Empowering Lives Tanzania. He not only learned how to do those jars, but other things on this journey. And he is one of, he's our, our director of Tanzania, but he works together with two other staff. You have Isaac Ruto, who's one of our trainers, and another guy, Nyamkindo. But I love seeing Jacob and Isaac out in the field because not only do we train people at our training center, but we have an even more dynamic ability to reach not hundreds or do dozens or hundreds, but thousands through an extension program that Isaac, the taller gentleman, made. Now, Jacob is about five foot three and very strong. Isaac is about six foot twelve. And it is amazing to see Jake, uh, Jacob driving the motorcycle and Isaac on back, just kind of holding on, <laughs> dong, dong, just moving down the trails, seeing these two guys, but I'm telling you, they are lions for the kingdom. And they move to these places. And, and Isaac, who designed the program, I, I wished I would have thought of it, but I'm just not that smart. He said, Don, let's train 30 people for, for three months. And they did it. Then he trained those 30 people as part of it to train five others in their own villages, in their own neighborhoods. And so those became stations. Isaac wrote stations, station one, two, through 30. Then those 30 people were commissioned to train five other people. So now that's 150. And every one of those people had another number. Then those 150, they were commissioned to train two. And this is over a period of years as Jacob and Isaac and Yamkino keep visiting these different stations. Anyway, friends, the short of it is, over this last two years, these three people have been able to train over 5,000 needy families. It is incredibly cost-effective because we don't feed the people. We give them knowledge, and they begin to take care of themselves in very unique ways. Um, for example, poultry. Now, we train people in gardening. But in Tanzania, they have an dr extensive dry season. And so the people told us, we love this gardening. It's helping us. But then it gets the dry season, and the vegetables dry up, and it's too hard to really irrigate. So we want to learn how to raise chickens effectively. So we've added poultry to the training schedule. And again, Isaac Ruto has developed this curriculum that is amazing. And we are seeing people who five years ago had five chickens, Four years ago, four chickens. Three years ago, four chickens. As they use this strategy, they are growing so many chickens. And now you trade five chickens for one sheep. Four sheep for one cow. Let me just give you an example. Is anybody here raised chickens at some point? Oh, my goodness. I think it was a requirement to sit on this side. <laughs> a few of you are on the wrong side. There's only two. But... Can you move, please? Oh, I'm kidding. Um, 
the hen lays the eggs, and she'll usually lay about five or six, and then she'll stop laying and nest on those eggs. But if you remove those fertilized eggs every day, she will keep laying. And those fertilized eggs remain viable for up to 10 days in a quiet, cool environment. So what we train them is keep removing those eggs from the hens every day, store them there, and then when one of your hens begins to show that behavior where she's ready to nest and to brood and, and hatch those eggs out, then you take all those eggs and you put all of them under her at once. And she says, what happened? And instead of hatching out five or seven chicks, we had one guy called uh, Jacob a couple months ago. And, and I was there visiting at the time, so I got to, 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 to see this. He got this call. One of the people, trainees said, Jacobo, please come and see. My hen hatched 20 chicks. So Jacob said, Don, we have to go visit this family, encourage it, and see and so forth. So we went out there, and for sure, here's this hen running around with uh, this little mass of yellow behind. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was amazing. And we asked him, how did you do this? And he said, well, I took an old mosquito net, and I kind of wadded it up into a tube and made this ring. And so then I put all of the eggs inside of that so that the hen could sit comfortably. He, he said, and she sat so nicely, but she had to put the wings out. But it's so exciting to to see how somebody starts with five chickens, but now because of the strategy, they end up having 30, then 40. You can do the math, um, because probably because I can't. Uh, the, the, the thing is, if you, if you have a hen, then, like this guy who had hatched out 20 chicks, chickens, those 20 chicks, after six months, will start laying their own eggs. So you have your original hen, who keeps laying every month, but now you have 20 one who are laying 10 to 20 eggs. Those will be able to lay there in another six months. So within 18 months, just try and figure out, how, if you have one hen, how many eggs or chickens are you going to end up with? And we're seeing it dramatically help people in wonderful ways. The other thing that I want to share with you is that God is leading our organization to make more and more steps towards being self-sustaining towards self-sustainability. As we empower other people and train them to do it, we also said, what about us? What are we doing as an organization to become more self-sustaining? And so we started some small businesses in Africa, and we're adding more as we feel God's leading and we get more equipped with resources and wisdom in starting these businesses. For example, the next picture is one of ours there in Tanzania. For years, we have had a training center and it's on the lake shore. It's amazing, beautiful property in the pocket of poverty. But last year, we started building fish ponds. So we have four that are done. We have resources for another, let's say, I think we have resources for another 10, but our goal is 20. So in this next year, we're going to have 20 fish ponds. Why? Because one fish pond can grow 800 tilapia fish in less than one year. Each fish sells for $1. It takes $300 of expenses to raise those 800 fish that sell for $1 each. Therefore, within one year, 
one fish pond will profit $500. And we're going to build 20 fish ponds in the next year. 2013, we're going to add another 20 fish ponds. And our aim, and we're already on, on track, but we're still at the beginning, but within three years, our entire ministry in Tanzania that is now reaching and training thousands of people will be completely self-supported and self-sustaining inside of its own country. So... In fact, if you want to get involved with some of these businesses, I know some of you are business people and you're kind of perking up here, that you can help sponsor one of these fish ponds or you can sponsor it for somebody else. We will name the fish after you. <laughs> Small name tags, things. Um, in fact, w- when it's served up and it's cooked, it's there on the plate, people say, oh, this is delicious. We'll say, no, it, actually it's Fred. <laughs> so... Um, We have that opportunity for you to partner with us in very specific ways with some specific projects that are helping us make those steps. And on this, inside of this, actually on the back, it gives you how you can participate during this Christmas with honoring somebody here by helping a family in Africa, help them get chickens or a goat or something. Uh, And so you can look for that right there. So step by step, we're helping change the world one life at a time. This lady was next to the fish pond. I thought she was working for us. So when I asked Jacob, our director, I said, Jacob, is she getting ready to help us build another fish pond or who is she? And he said, oh, Pastor Don, I hope it's okay. I said, what? He said, well, she is actually somebody who came together with six other ladies that are there behind her. And she lives about a mile inland, and there's no water where she's at, and she's struggling to feed her children. And she came and asked me if she could farm this small square of land because we're next to the lake and the water is, the soil is moist. And I said, absolutely. Jacob, good job. One life at a time, we're making a difference. People coming for training, going home with ideas, pastors coming for encouragement, Few at a time. This is Pastor Nyamkindo. He started with five ducks. He now has over 30 ducks, over 40 chickens. He's got about seven to, to eight sheep, and he's got six cows. Working together with communities. We train 30 people at our center for nine months. Most of our training is done through the extension or through one or three day courses at our training center. But there are 30 people that we help change the course of their life during a nine-month training that takes a $500 investment for one person. This community is in the Cario Valley, a very dry place. They had lost hope. They sent five people to our training center. They went back to the community. Those five started sharing the ideas until the community clamored and said, we need you to come. Meet with us where we are so that you can see what resources we don't have. But maybe you can see something we could do. And so our director of the training center has gone about five times. And now this community has started its own tree nursery, 3,000 trees that they're growing. They're planting 400 mango trees, the first, citrus, the first fruit trees sorry, in that area in that way. But this particular picture is about two and a half, three acres of watermelon that they're cooperatively growing. And within this year, they will profit 
over $2,000 as a community, being able to then buy food and buy clothing and pay school fees. This is our vertical garden that uh, some of you have heard about this. We're in the same land space. You'd normally grow 10 vegetables. You can grow 80. You fill the sack with soil. You poke the holes. You plant your seedlings in. We haven't heard one plant complain. <laughs> and it's an amazing way to help people who have very little land grow food. This is a place where the soil erosion has just overtaken the entire area. Imagine this as, as a flat pristine grassland that was at, at one point that's now been overgrazed by goats and cows and then the storms come in, removing the topsoil, creating gullies. Nobody can even live there. But we are now partnering with communities like Turu Turu, the one I just told you about. We're helping them now grow this grass called vetiver grass. And you can read more about that in this, in this article, but it just Brief, briefly, the roots go down within one year over eight feet. It locks the soil into place, and it creates a very nice hedge at the top that traps the rainwater and collects the topsoil so that it doesn't run away down into the rivers. And we're propagating this by the thousands. A, a, a few, um, last year, a guy emailed me. He heard me talking about this, and he said, Don, you're growing vetiver grass. I said, yes. He said, I'm in the perfume industry. He says, do you know about vetiver roots? I said, yeah, they go down eight feet. He said, yeah, they do, but the oil that you distract, extract from those roots is used as the base oil for over 40% of the perfumes in our world. I said, then we're uprooting all of it. <laughs> Forget the erosion problem. I'm kidding, of course. Um, we, we have now started growing vetiver grass for our own purposes. We're growing it in, in tall sacks because the roots go down so deep. Instead of digging down, we're growing it in tall sacks, each plant, so it fills the, the sack of dirt. Fill the sack with dirt, plant the plant, roots go down. So anyway, uh, maybe someday in the future you'll get, be buying a perfume that says Eau de Africa, empowering... <laughs> perfume. Um, but we're going to hopefully secure this extraction. It's steam distillation. So it's going to cost us uh, a good investment, but it's going to, in the long run, really help us in a tremendous way. Uh, this other one I, I have to tell you about, and then, then I'll wrap up. This um, is some grain sacks. People in Africa struggle to grow their corn, struggle to grow their corn. They use so much of their money, almost all of, all of their money to be able to get this corn because they depend on it to carry them through the rest of the year when they harvest in October, November. But many of the people open their bag three, five, six months later, they open it only to, def to find that 20 to 80% of it has been destroyed by weevils and little beetles that you can't see when you package it, when you dry it and package it. They're, they're just little eggs or seeds, so they, they seal it up. Then a lot of people counter that by adding a lot of poisons in the grain and pesticides. Well, there's an idea that was developed 20 years ago how to suffocate those insects using special plastic sacks. But nobody really, it didn't take off until two years ago, Purdue University reignited it, designed these sacks, and they're selling them in West Africa. Well, that's like... People in California saying, 
Don't you know what they're doing in Florida? Well, it's a long ways away, and so I couldn't get those sacks. I tried. The most I could get was 20 of them. We need thousands to be able to help people. And I pray. I said, God, what are we going to do to, just an idea, but we're stuck here. And I started asking around, and I discovered that there's a plastics factory in Eldoret. It's a half an hour from where we live. So I made an appointment. I pull in with two of our national staff, and we go in there. I met the owner of the factory, and he was a very friendly guy, an Indian. And um, he said, who are you, and what do you need? And I said, well, we're from Empowering Lives. And he said, Empowering Lives? I've heard of you. Are you the ones with the orphanages, and you do the training for needy people? He said, yeah, that's us. He goes, I have heard of you. And then he leaned forward. He says, how can I help you? So I began to, to describe these sacks and the specific size we need and the thickness. He, this is after he'd taken us for a tour of a very sophisticated factory. And so I said, this is what we need. I said, do you think you can make that? And he said, my friend, I can make you any sack you want. And you tell me what color. So he did the calculation and said, how much will it cost? And he puts a number. He says, okay, for the first thousand, it'll cost this. Is, this. He said, this is my cost. I said, okay, and how much will you charge us? He said, well, he did some calculating. He said, okay, and this is what I'll ask you to pay. I was confused because this was his cost, and this was half of this. And I said, now, this is your cost? He said, yes. And this is what you want us to pay? He says, yes. I said, well, this is half of this. And he said, that's correct. <laughs> um, I said, can, can you explain? And he said this, do you think I really love plastic? <laughs> do you think I wake up in the morning and I say, oh, boy, I'm going to my factory to make more plastic sacks? He says, I have my master's in this. I know everything about this business. I was trained in Europe, and I could be there right now with a factory. But if I was there, I would be employing five people. But here in Kenya, through this factory, I am able to employ 250 people. He says, yes, plastic is the business. But helping people is why I get up in the morning. And I I know You are the same. And this is my way of being a part of empowering people. So we've now distributed, and we're in the process of distributing our first 100 sacks. We don't want to do thousands yet. We have to do the test trial to make sure, absolutely sure that it's working. We're only giving one or two sets to every farmer because we, in case it something goes wrong, and we have them sign off a liability sheet. So we're working with these first 200 farmers, but I know it's going to work, and next year we're going to do it by the thousands. And the SAC is the Empowering Lives International. It's called the Elite Elite Grain Storage Bag. Empowering Lives International Triple Enclosure. So we're seeing God's hand and his fingerprints continuing to help us, and it's been an exciting journey. Well, friends, I want to thank you for standing with us over these years. I want to thank you for praying for us. And uh, Pastor John, thank you for allowing us to have this Sunday to be able to share. Um, We do ask that 
you'll continue to pray for us. We, we leave on December 13th, and we'll fly as a family to New York, where we'll spend some time with Amy's parents, and then there's also a church there that's been a part of supporting us. And then December 29th, we leave back for Africa. But um, friends, I know there's a lot of bad news about Africa. There is. We read it in the newspapers about fighting and wars and other things. But I want you to know, God is making a difference. He is changing that place. And it's happening one life at a time. And it's been a privilege to be a part of that journey and to be a part of that journey with you.